Uh, Jonathan and uh, Matt and myself and uh, Bill's going as well, right? We're going to be heading up to Pekanjikum. It's been a while since I've been there. I know John's been there a few times since I was there last. But uh, uh, we're going, it's been a difficult time in Pekanjikum of late. And uh, they need a revelation of who God made them to be. Uh, not just as uh, individuals, but also as a people. A people loved by him. Amen. And uh, so we're going to be going up. I'm going to ask John to come wherever he's hiding back here. Where are you, Johnny? There he is. And uh, we'll bring the lights up so you can see the whites of his eyes. <laughs> and he's just going to give you a bit of how you can pray, how you can support us, what you can do for us on this trip. And, uh, and then I'm going to have him stay up here, and I'm just going to have uh, the leaders for the house just pray over us. Would awesome. that be cool? So. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. So just a quick update. I just finished the Iditarod Outreach in Alaska. We did 12 dates in seven days. And we saw over 300 people come to the Lord. We had, we had, a, whole bunch of, uh, we had a whole bunch of families that had been really struck with suicide up there. And right at the end of one of our gatherings, there was one family that we spent time with that actually had lost three sons to suicide. And we were just, you know, the mom and dad were devastated. But the cool part of that whole story was, was when we went into the village, you know, I've taught, told you guys how we do protocol. We enter the village and we bring a gift and we enter through leadership. And it just so happened these were the, this was the couple that the people chose for us to, us to protocol. And we ended up being with them for an extra couple hours just ministering to their hearts and uh, in regards to their, their loss of their boys. I can't, I can't even, can anybody put their head around that? Even one, even one, but to lose three? This is happening in our native community still. And we, the church, have got to wake up. We've got to stop partying, and we've got to start focusing on the need. Because heaven, heaven's not going to come down. We're not going to see that great thing that we're crying out for, the revival, until we do what we're supposed to do. We've got a mandate, and the mandate is to, to save the lost, to bring healing to the world, for the world to recognize the outpouring of what Jesus wants to do and his purpose when he died on the cross. I want to just say about Matt, Matt was an amazing representative of Desert Stream. He just, this guy is just... He's first class. I just love, I love Matt because everywhere we go, he carries my bags and just, no. <laughs> he's, he's strong, you know, and if there isn't enough room, Matt always likes us piling the equipment on top of him. So whenever we're going somewhere, if it's a tight plane, even though he's a big guy, he makes space. This guy makes space for these kind of situations. Um, so... I have a picture that I want to show. Uh, hopefully it's going to be up there. If it's not up there, okay, so Pekanjikum, something has just happened in Pekanjikum besides the tragedy. Something good has just happened in the community. Our, uh, the community has just elected a new chief, and the chief is, uh, of course, a, a person from Pekanjikum, but she's a university graduate. She loves Jesus. And 
They've never had some uneducated person in leadership. Like, always it's been people of the community that rise up that are, you know, do their very best, but they don't have the resources educationally to draw on that this lady has. And we need to pray for her. Her name is Amanda. And you need to mark Amanda. I had a picture of her in some some words, but you need to mark the name Amanda in your mind for Pecanjicum. This community is has actually literally had per capita the most suicides on earth for the for the size of the community. And Pastor Kevin's coming with me to Pecanjicum. He's coming on, on April 2nd. He and I leave and we're going to be up there for six days. And I'm taking my team in and we're going to be we're going to be ministering in the program for alcohol and drug addictions. We're going to be ministering to four different separate classrooms that are the highest needs young people like teenagers who have suicide issues. So we're going to be going in and specifically doing ministry in there. We're doing uh, concerts, plus we're doing the Carry the Cure Committed to Life program. So this is Amanda, Amanda Sainawap. She's the chief. She's been to university. She's passionate for her people. And I asked Colleen, what do we need to pray for? She said, our community is so tired and so death-weary. So I don't know if I've ever had a chance to tell you this. Why Pecanjicum? God laid Pecanjicum on my heart 12 years ago because God showed me that when we see breakthrough in Pecanjicum, it's going to mean that for the First Nations across the country. And so um, she is uh, uh, a leader that's in a place that is one of the most volatile situations you can imagine. She's going to have to stand her ground. She's going to have to be strong because there's always a battle for the chief in Pecanjicum. Always, every chief. But she looks pretty determined, doesn't she? And she is, uh, she's uh, Travis's sister. Do you, know, you know, remember Travis? She's his sister, his older sister. So when Travis recently lost a sister to a fire, their house burnt down and his sister one of his other sisters died in that house. So, I mean, death has been rampant in this community. So, I want you to say this after me. Say, Picanjicum. Say it again. That name needs to be on your lips when you pray. You need to say that word, and you need to pray that God will, who the sun sets free is free indeed, right? That's what we just sang. That's what we just sang about. And, you know, Jesus has been in Pecanjicum for a long time, but he came in a way that was not palatable for the people. When we go there, we're carrying the message in through the love, and we're doing it in a cultural way. Pastor Kevin is going to be awesome there because Colleen looks at Pastor Kevin as her pastor. I don't know if you guys know that, but she has loved Pastor Kevin because he always responds to her. When she calls and she's desperate, he always writes back. He always prays with her. He always sends her scriptures of encouragement. And she's, she just really thinks Pastor Kevin's the coolest. So I said, hey, Kevin, why don't you come with us? And you can go uh, work on your stardom up there a little bit. <laughs> so, but I really want you to pray. They've lost enough children. Two 13-year-olds in the last two months. It's unbelievable. It's just unstinking believable what they face up there. And we are, we are a church that is taking on this community. I mean, we can go to Africa and we can do the stuff everywhere else, but this is our backyard. This is Canada. 
And if Canada's ever going to hold its head up high and the church is going to hold its head up high, we have to make a difference there. So my appeal today is for prayer. My appeal is that when you pray, that you remember Pekanjikum, you remember those young people, you remember that they need the clarity of the Holy Spirit to begin to wash across their minds and their hearts in that community, that they need to be able to see the hope that's found in Jesus because the Jesus that has been there for a long time has been a very religious Jesus. He's been a Jesus that says, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, and it's been in through three or four different denominations. They were you know, hit terribly by residential school, and all of these things have brought Pekanjikum to its knees. Now, we the church, we're responding. We're responding, and we've responded. I've been there 19 times, and I keep going back. And, and you know, they they didn't have a suicide for three years for a little while there, but now there's a pickup, and things are happening. So it means that the enemy knows He knows we're coming after him. And so we need your prayer. We need your love. If you want to sow into broken walls, feel free to to help us out. We love you guys. Thank you. Thanks, John. Praise the Lord. Can we just just get you folks as a church to come on up and, and, and lay hands on us? Come on up here, Matt. You're coming as well. And we'd just like you to gather around us and pray for us as we're going forth. Um, You know... I'm looking forward to seeing Colleen. If there's anybody in the world who's going to look at me and, and say, I'm so happy that that person's my pastor, Colleen's one of those people who be right up there for me. Uh, she is an incredible servant of the Lord. She's an American who's adopted this Canadian uh, native community and taken it into her heart, whole scale. She has moved there. She has been living there and working there for over a decade and is so committed to the people of Comanchicum. And she's the whitest and, uh, person. Oh, yeah, she's a white Minnesotan. I mean, uh, you know, they don't, they don't get any uh, poster child for it, you know what I'm saying, than her, and yet uh, the town loves her. And they, they, they are at her home, and she has walked through so many people and so much heartache with them that she gets weary as well, and she needs our prayer. So we just ask you to stand this morning. Uh, if you want to come up and join with us, that's great. Stretch your hands out toward us. We'd love that as well. Uh, we just want you to pray for us before we go. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Can I just say, too, that really, when you partner with somebody else's ministry, like Jonathan, who cannot do these things without our support, that you get credit for everything that the Lord does through him. The Lord looks at that as you, because you're willing to let yourself be used in order for Jonathan to be able to do what he's called to do. Not all of us can go and travel up north and all over the world to do what God has called Jonathan to do, but he... We make it possible for him. So let me encourage you to pray for broken walls. Consider what God would have you do to minister to Pekanjikum. We've displayed their flag for years in this church. We've had them here. We've, we've partnered with that community. And without you guys, Jonathan can't get there. So consider that, if you would. It, some of you, I know it's tugging at your heart that you'd like to go and you can't, but this is another way to be able to support it. So let's pray and agree what God wants to do in Pekanjigam through this team this time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your faithfulness to us, Lord. We thank you, Father, that, that you work through our hands, that nothing is impossible for us, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, that you're our provider, you're a good, good father, Lord. 
Thank you, Father, that you'll never let us down, that we can take the hope that we have here, Father, and bring it to Pekanjikum by sending Jonathan and his team there. Father, that we can, we can work through prayer support and through financial support to see that community changed for you, Father, to see the reversal of suicide and the reversal of that traditional um, spirit that has come into that community from years past and break that, Lord. We are more than conquerors. The enemy does not have authority. We can take it back from him where it's been given ground because we are the victory. We are the victors, Lord, in you. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we just thank you for what you're going to do for it, the testimonies that Jonathan's going to bring back from this trip and the lives that are going to be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, House. We deeply appreciate it. And uh, I had the privilege of a couple weekends ago of being, I, I told John I was the token white guy uh, speaking at a First Nations conference they had at um, Free Methodist Church in uh, Napanee uh, just uh, a couple weeks ago. And that denomination is, is opening its heart to what God wants to do amongst our first peoples in Canada. And so I was really honored when John asked me if I'd come and share and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a thing where it's so easy to pick up a platitude and just repeat it over and over again, right? Uh, I've heard just about every one of them. Well, you know, why, I don't, why do they stay up there? Why don't they just leave and come join civilization? I've had people say that to me. Even well-intentioned preachers have said that to me. Uh, I've had say, you know, well, they just need to get over it. It's been over 100 years right? You have everything you can think of thrown out there. And uh, it doesn't change the fact that the situation still sucks. Someone say amen. And, um, and we have a responsibility for all of our people. You know, we roll out the carpet for people immigrating from other countries, and yet we have people living in squalor in our back door, and, uh, and we're not doing anything about it. And people say, well, we already throw so much money. The amount of money that goes into... Uh, Native Affairs here in Canada is a fraction of the money that the country pulls out of those uh, Native territories every year in uh, uh, taxes and money from all the mining and the forestry and everything else. The money that, that, that would be theirs if, if they managed it, but the government of Canada, I don't know if you realize this, but you, if you own a farm or whatever, you only own the top 20 or so feet of your land, whether it's your house or whether you have 100 acres. The government of Canada owns everything underneath. And when they discover oil in your property, they have to pay for access to get to your property to drill it, but the oil belongs to the government of Canada. Do you guys understand that? Uh, it's part of living in a socialist country like Canada. Uh, in the United States, if you own it, you own it right to the ground, right to the center of the earth, they say, but not in Canada. And so uh, all that money, uh, what happens to it? And uh, there is enough uh, money coming out of our native communities that if it was poured back into our native communities, we would not have a problem of no housing, no schools. Am I making any sense to anybody? So uh, these are situations that, that we have to take ownership of and we have a responsibility to fix. And um, when you see the, the homes and the places that they're living in and, uh, and you know, are been promised so much and received so little. And if anyone wants to take me to task on it, you can come and talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to straighten you out. <laughs> God is a good God, and we've been rightly blessed. Amen? So we need to take a responsible look at how we use our blessings and what we're going to do with them. Amen? That's all for free this morning. It has nothing to do with what I'm preaching on. But um, 
it's true nonetheless. Amen. We're looking at uh, bringing in a gentleman uh, who's going to do a real visual here for us on a Sunday morning, and John and I are trying to figure out how we're going to do it. Um, it, it, uh, it's called the blanket ceremony. We'd like to be able to do that here. Um, and uh, again, we're not really sure how we're going to do it, but it's going to be awesome. It will absolutely uh, upend your heart and your spirit. It'll be amazing, and we can't wait to be able to get to do it. All right, anyway, um, usually I do a review. This morning's more of a, of a not a review, but a repeat, because I had so many people come up to me after uh, my message a couple weeks ago and say to me, I don't understand this thing you're talking about two narratives. How can you help me out with it? And uh, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe explain it a little better this morning, go a little deeper with it, and then help you understand how important it is for us to operate uh, by the Holy Spirit and share our faith from the position of this first, or the understanding of this first narrative. So, so when people ask me for clarification about the two narratives, you know, uh, I think the first thing you have to understand is, what, everybody know what a narrator is? So you ever watch one of those movies, whether it's a Disney classic or some movie, and the movie's starting to unfold, and there's a person who you don't see, you just hear their voice, and they're telling the story, right? They're giving you background information, lead-in, interpretation, all kinds of different things that they're giving you about what you're about to watch on the screen. And they may sometimes, depending on the movie, the way it's done, uh, the narrator may come in and bring commentary all the way through the movie, right? You guys have seen that before. You've watched movies like that. You've read books like that. So the narrator is that person who's outside of the story, but is telling you the story, is telling you things about the story. They didn't write the story, usually, right? They're just somebody hired to narrate the story, somebody who's telling the story. They're not the author of the story. They're not the the one who is, is directing the story. They're simply the one reporting or narrating the story, okay? So when we talk about a narrative, we're talking about a, a, a retelling or a, uh, somebody giving you the story. We're not actually trying to say this is exactly what happened, but they're doing their best to tell you the story, to interpret the story. So when we talk about the fact that the, you know, the biblical account of creation through to redemption and, and how there are two narratives that have uh, 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 basically influenced the telling of that story. We're not saying that there's two different stories. There's only one story. There's only, you know, the biblical account is the only story. You understand what I'm saying? But how that story is told, how it is narrated, is extremely important. There is only one story. So I'm not saying that the one narrative is, is only looking at certain verses or only looks at certain portions of the Bible or is based on the Bible, and the other narrative is not based on the Bible. Not what I'm saying at all. Both based on the Bible, but they are a narrative. They're, they are a way in which we tell the story. Does that help everybody out? So when we look at, you know, those two narratives, you know, the the, and the first narrative, which was focusing on the fact that God said it was very good. Everybody say good. You know, we're talking about the Genesis account, the same biblical account that we'll look at that the second narrative is talking about. But in this first narrative, uh, you know, the focus is on how good things were that God created. God created a good earth. God created a good ecosystem. God created uh, wonderful, beautifully uh, incredibly technically advanced creatures on this planet. Uh, the, 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 he created things like DNA. Did you know that? He created all of the communication and information that's floating around in your body. I mean, it was all created by God. God created the eyeball. 
Did you know that the eyeball is a fascinating piece of engineering? It's astounding. Uh, and, and how, you know, we think we're really cool because we can make microchips and make little, you know, connections and stuff. We still can't replicate what's in the eyeball. And if we tried to, it, you know, it's, it, it's like to get it that quality, we need something, you know, with a lens this big, right? And, uh, and instantly your eye can zoom in and out, 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 can blur, can focus, can do all this stuff just like that all the time. And so we have to want, uh, take a look at, at the Bible which says you are beautifully and wonderfully made. You are an absolute marvel of creation that was made by God. And in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we have the, the story of the creation of the world and the story of the creation of man. And when you uh, tell the story from the first narrative, your focus is on uh, how God formed man out of the ground, breathed into him his breath, and man became a living, special creation of God. That man became this beautiful work of the creator that was made in his image. And I think we all understand that that doesn't mean that God looks like us physically. He may, he may not, I don't know, but I mean, he's a spirit. So it's not like he needs to have, you know, two hands and you know, four fingers and opposing thumbs on each hand and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? But when it says we're made in his image, it's talking about the very nature, essence of our being, that we are created like God that we can love. We are created like God that we can demonstrate grace and mercy. We're created like God in that we can create, we can innovate, as Pastor Ken talked about here a few weeks ago. We can do things, you know, that are spectacular. You say, well, so can the animals. Yeah, beavers can build a dam, and it's a technical marvel. But the beaver doesn't decide next week to improve the dam. The dam design has been the same dam design for many years. <laughs> right? Centuries, millennia even. You know, it's not like all of a sudden the beaver says, I'd like a three-story one. And I think I'd like a balcony out in the back overlooking the pond. Do you know what I'm saying? He, he, the beaver builds the way the beaver was, was wired to build from the very beginning, does not have the ability to build any other way. We do. We can look at that and go, you know, that building method sucks. We're going to build better houses. We can have an earthquake happen, and we can study the earthquake and how it wrecks the buildings, and we can say, you know what, we can build buildings better so that the earthquake doesn't wreck the buildings. See, we have this ability to innovate and create that, that no other creature on the planet has. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. We have those abilities given to us by God. And so when we look at the creation and the story of the scripture and redemption through that first narrative, the emphasis is on God's original intent. What did God intend when he put man in the garden? I think he made it really plain. He said, go forth and multiply, right? He said, subdue the earth. That doesn't mean treat it badly. Hello? He means to fill it and to take care of it, right? So that's what God told us. He said, fill it. Our mandate was to have a, if you look at that word, it means to have dominion, means to have complete authority in this realm. That's how God designed us. We were to have complete authority in this realm, and we were to be the ones who were given the governorship of this planet. It was our home. It was our, our portion of the divine kingdom. That's what God created uh, in us. And so the emphasis is on what was God's original intent. And so when we look at redemption, we're saying, what does God want to do in redemption? We believe from the first narrative, he wants to restore his original plan. Okay, do you follow that? Now, 
Anyway, the, the second narrative, the scripture I looked at uh, from Genesis chapter 3, was then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. That, that verse in verse 7 kind of uh, sums up the account in Genesis chapter 3 of the fall of man. So after eating the fruit, immediately the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked. They experienced shame. Innocence was lost. A punishment for their sins was then uh, explained and, and set out. And this, this is what we call the story of the garden. This is the story of original sin. And, uh, and then we even have Christ uh, referred to by Paul in the scripture as the second Adam, uh, the one who would come and would restore uh, things, uh, would deal with sin, would deal with the issues that brought forth death. And the focus of the second narrative is on Adam's sin. It sees the world of Christ, sees the work, I should say, of Christ on the cross as the undoing of the work of Satan in the garden, of redeeming us from the curse of death. The death and resurrection of Christ is viewed as the cosmic event which deals with the sin problem. As a result of Christ's sacrifice, man no longer faces an eternity of separation from God, but can now be reunited with God throughout eternity. And this is not wrong. When I tell you it's a Again, it's a, this is both narratives that I'm talking about are completely soundly biblical. Everybody say biblical. That's completely biblical. So we're not saying that one is, is, is biblical and one is not biblical. What we're talking about is how they, uh, the way that we view, the narrative that we follow with the scripture, how it impacts uh, the, the sharing of our faith and the way we live our faith. And I think that's where the difference is. So what's the difference? Well, for much of church history, the focus of the creation narrative and the redemption story has been on original sin, right? I mean, if you, I don't know, like we, we talked after the service last Sunday, and I talked with different people, especially those that were raised Catholic, and they said, man, I get it. You're right. That was the focus. And, um, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of Catholics since I started working on this and said, can you guys remember uh, any Easter Sundays? And they're like, but they can all remember Good Friday, right? We all remember the Stations of the Cross. We all remember, uh, you know, the, the events uh, of that. But very little can I remember about Easter Sunday. And I pointed out a couple weeks ago how even in Mel Gibson's great movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, everything is about, you know, two hours and seven minutes of Christ's journey to the cross, and then there's a 30-second footnote of the resurrection at the end. Now, you could argue, well, yeah, but it's purpose was to tell the story of suffering and sacrifice. I get that. But the story of Christ's suffering and sacrifice is incomplete without the story of the glorious resurrection. Right? It's half of the story. It's an important half. It's, it's a factual half. And it was incredibly well done in his movie. Great job, Mel. But it's only half the story. And you can't give half the story there and 30 seconds to the other half. I'm still waiting for part two. And there's rumor that he may produce it. And if he does, praise the Lord, I'm going to be one happy man. But the reality is, it's only half the story, but it gets 99.9% of the airtime, right? And you can't have the story of the death and resurrection without the, and the death, I should say, and crucifixion without the glorious resurrection, right? Paul spends great length in Scripture talking about that. He says, if, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead... Then he said, you and I are still what? We're still stuck in our sins. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, then he's just another dude who died on the cross. How many know they crucified more than one? 
and not just on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, it was a preferred way of torture for the Roman uh, government. So Jesus was not the first guy to die on the cross, and he wasn't the last. The cross is important to us because of who died on the cross, who gave their life, and we know who he was because he rose from the dead. If there is no resurrection, Jesus was not the Son of God. He did not triumph over the grave, and you and I are still in deep poo-poo. Are you hearing me this morning? To put it in simple language. So, why is it that history has been dominated by the fall of man? Well, I'm going to try and help explain that over the next uh, few weeks. But this narrative, the the Genesis chapter 3 original uh, sin narrative, has been dominant for many reasons. Um, One of them is because it's easier to control people when you have something over them. Right? Religiously, it's much easier to control people if you can hold their sin over them, right? If you tell people that you're free, you're free indeed. Well, they may do just about anything. How would I control them then? The answer to that question is you can't. But but what if they sin? I guess that's Jesus' job to take care of, isn't it? Not yours. See, there's a lot of reasons why we went down this road, but they almost always lead back to religious control. Ouch. Ouch. I want to make somebody, some people really angry when I finish this book, for sure. <clears throat> we have to keep in mind that God's desire was to have a people that would rule and reign with him as his collective family. So the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection was about God reestablishing his colony. It was about God reestablishing his people. God reestablishing his dominion so that God would have his glory, as Psalm 72 verse 8 says, would he would have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's always been his plan. And how does he exercise that dominion? How does God have dominion on this planet? There's only one way, through the church, through his people, through us. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. You can say, well, bad plan, God. You should have done it some other way. Well, you know, <laughs> you take a look in the mirror and you go, bad plan, God, bad plan. But it's his plan, and he's sticking with his plan. He has not abandoned the plan, all right? So the first narrative's focus is on God's original intent, and we should tell the Bible story focused on what God's original intent is, the special nature of God's prized creation and its restoration. The second narrative focuses on original sin, the depravity of man and his need of a cure for his sin problem. And, you know, please understand, uh, when sharing the gospel from this first narrative, uh, we are focusing on the divine nature of man. We're focusing on how wonderfully he was created. We're focusing on the God who created us this way. Our emphasis is on the good news. Isn't it interesting that the word gospel, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. I, I remember, first person I ever heard challenge this for me was Larry Norman. Anybody remember Larry Norman? You know, some, some of you old, old gray hairs remember Larry Norman. He was that first guy that brought that rock and roll into the church. And I may listen to it now, and it's usually Larry on an acoustic guitar getting, you know, trampled for bringing rock and roll into the church. <laughs> but anyway, you know, Larry Norman, I remember him, you know, telling the story once. And he was talking about our language and all the rest of it. And he said, uh, you know, he said, we really are not good at telling the good news. 
And, uh, and then he said, and then he gave this illustration. <clears throat> he said, uh, you know, one guy's witnessing to another, and he said, uh, you know, hey, listen, he said, um, uh, I want to ask you a question. He goes, what's that? He goes, um, have you ever been saved? And then he said, yeah. He goes, oh, really? And he goes, yeah. He says, happened just last year. He said, I was up on the lake, and I stood up in the canoe, and he goes, and I fell in, and I can't swim. And this guy dove into the water and swam out to me, pulled me back. He goes, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. Oh, okay. He said, well, well, what do you mean then? He said, well, he said, have you ever been, uh, have you ever been washing the blood? Oh, I hope not. And then he says, no, no, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to ask you. He says, have you ever been redeemed? I don't think so. And then he goes, well, I, okay, what I'm trying to do, he goes, I'm trying to tell you the good news. Oh, what's that? You're going to hell. And he goes, oh, what's the bad news? You know? And, and you see, when you're sharing your faith, from the, the second narrative, with all the focus on original sin, it's difficult. I mean, and I know that we've got people that think they're perfect and they've never sinned, but when you drill down into someone's life, the reality is they know. They may put on a good facade, but they know, I'm not making the mark. I'm not the person I need to be. That's why no matter how much wealth they have, no matter how much prominence they have, no matter how much uh, they have following and everything else, you know, that the suicide rates and the, the people, I mean, you know all of the, the celebrities and the people of, that have drank themselves to death, drug overdosed themselves to death. How many, how many times over and over again we've seen about it? We were like, why? You've got everything. Why? Because they don't have everything. They need the hope that only Jesus can bring. Amen? They need somebody to tell them the good news, that they're loved by God. That he has a plan for their life. That the misery they're trying to eke out in is not working because you were meant for something more. You were meant to have dominion in this world. To, to, to live out the authority of Christ. You were meant to be able to bring hope. You were meant to be able to bring joy. You were meant to be able to bring healing. You were meant to be able to bring the fix for the world. That's what you were created for. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called good news. Not just good news because you escape hell. Because if that's the case, then it's only good news after we die. Right? But it's good news today. Amen? It's good news today. All right. Whoops. It's important to understand, as I said, both narratives are biblical. Both narratives are true. So now I want to talk. That was kind of a review of last week or two weeks ago. So now I just want to focus the last 10 minutes here on what it means to live, to truly live by grace from the first narrative. So if we're going to do this, if we're going to commit to this path, what does that look like? And if for most of church history, we've been stuck in the second narrative, then, then how do we flip this over and start living by grace from the first narrative? And what does that look like? Let me help you out. First of all, understand, grace is the unmerited favor of God, right? We already defined grace is us getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is us... Not getting what we deserve, but grace is us getting what we don't deserve, right? Okay? So grace is, what is it that we got that we don't deserve? We got the unmerited, unearned. Everybody say unearned. We got the unearned favor and love of God. That's what God has given us. And I can live in this every minute of every day of my life. Mark did a great job last week talking about the favor of God. He maybe could have spent a little time at the beginning connecting it to 
understand why that's important and what's that got to do with grace because that really is an explanation of grace. Unmerited favor. Unearned love. Unearned favor. And we can live in it every day. Everybody say every day. That's what God has for us. Every day. So what does living in God's grace and this unmerited favor uh, do for us? And more specifically, how does it affect the way we think and the way we live. Well, let me show you some points here today about that. First of all, uh, let me see. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you this. It's by grace that I'm saved. We all get that under both narratives. Uh, It's grace by which I stand. But it is the grace of God which I must live in or I'll never know freedom and joy in Christ. This is the story of the first narrative. We have to live in it or we'll never know freedom. Freedom doesn't come because of self-discipline. How many know that doesn't work? You can't change all your habits just by self-discipline. Paul said in the scripture, but by the Spirit do we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Only by the Spirit, which is given to us, how? By grace, unmerited favor. We don't get it by working harder. We don't get it by self-discipline. We don't get it by reading more scripture or by memorizing, memorizing more scripture, although it's good to memorize because then we have something to speak to the devil about when he comes at us. But the reality is, as wonderful as those things are to make us more useful for God, right? We talked about that. They don't change our value. Our value is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ. And I'm able to stand and live every day by his sacrifice, by his grace. Amen. All right, so here's what it does. First thing is grace liberates me from guilt. Everybody say it together with me this morning. Grace liberates me from guilt. What do I mean by that? Well, because I know that the price was paid in full, I don't have to be robbed by guilt. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Now, I'm not perfect, right? I still sin. I know some of you find that hard to believe because Sherry is so deliriously happy that you're thinking to yourself, there can't be any sin in this guy. I mean, just look at the permanent smile on her face. Uh, and she's so blessed that, that her husband must be perfect. And, uh, and, and I know that that thought has occurred to you. You probably go home every Sunday after church and say, man, that message was so right on. Pastor Kevin is so perfect. Oh, Sherry is so lucky and blessed. But the reality is that Pastor Kevin still sins. That happens on very rare occasions. But he still sins. But here's the thing. I sin. <laughs> Careful now, girl. <laughs> I, I, I still sin, but I don't live in guilt. I don't live in guilt. Guilt is a terrible thief. It's a terrible thief. Now, you might say, oh, so you're saying you're never bothered by your sin? I didn't say that. I get convicted all the time, but conviction and guilt are not the same thing. Right? Conviction leads to repentance and life. Guilt lives to shame and death. Does everybody understand the difference? Conviction leads to repentance, turning around, 180 degrees, going in the other direction, and life. But guilt, guilt leads to shame, and shame leads to death. And so, uh, do I experience conviction when I've sinned? Absolutely. And the, the older I get, the more mature I get, the more convicted I get. And the more I understand how much God loves me, the more convicted I get. But I don't live in guilt. Are you hearing me this morning? Everybody say, guilt-free. Woo! 
Let's go have a, let's go have a chocolate bar and live guilt-free. Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. So grace liberates me from guilt. Here's, okay, so the extension from that is then that grace frees me from guilt-based work. Everybody say this. Grace frees me from guilt-based work. Guilt-based work. Do you know how many religions demand that you work for what you get? I mean, you can study world religions and you're going to be shocked by what you discover. The thing that is, is amazing to me is that it's not just Buddhism, Islam, and so many other religions that manage to work work into it, but it's also many denominations in Christianity. And yet the reality is we cannot produce anything that changes our value to God by our work. We've already talked about this, but my goodness, it's amazing how we are motivated by when we, especially when we feel guilty, to work harder, right? You know, you, ha- you, you blow your cool again for the third time this week, yelling at your wife or yelling at your children, and you feel so guilty, so you say, I'm just going to work harder. I'm gonna, you know, what I need to do is I, I, should, I should watch less television, read ten times more scripture, and, you know, and, and maybe if I go serve at, at, at Grace Inn Shelter, then God will fix me. Those are all wonderful things to do, but it's not going to change you. Only Christ can change you. And, and that doesn't come from work. That comes from relationship doesn't come from you beating yourself up. No, it comes from you coming into the presence of the Lord and saying, God, I have blown it again. You have to fix me. You have to do the work in me. And he says, well, do you trust me? Will you hand yourself over to me? Because if you will, then we can work on this. But if you won't, we're at an impasse. There's not much I can do here. So since the price for my salvation was paid once for all sin, past, present, and future, everybody say, and future, then there's nothing that I can do to earn what has freely been provided for me already. So therefore, therefore, I have to understand that God made me good, and I could do nothing to earn that. That's why we're good for nothing. Did it cost him something? Absolutely. I'm not saying it didn't. But me? No. It was done by him. All right. Uh, third thing. If it, grace frees me from shame. So everybody say this together. Grace frees me from shame. My past, my heritage without God, is, everybody get this word, meaningless under grace. Meaningless. God does not view me except as a saint. Turn to the person beside you and say, you're a saint. That's how God views you as a saint. The power of shame is broken because my significance comes from whom I am in Christ and not my performance as a man or a woman. Do you get that this morning? So my significance comes from who I am in Him. Therefore, I don't have to feel ashamed because He made me, right? He made me with, you know, a receding hairline, a propensity to gain weight in the middle, which I'm feverishly working against, you know? Uh, he, he made me incredibly good looking. Uh, you know, he, he did all these things and, you know, and he did it and he did it well. And I have to just learn to live with it and embrace it and enjoy it and say, this is who I am and not have any shame about it. And finally, uh, grace frees me from fear. Say this with me this morning. Grace fee- frees me from fear. This is important for us to understand. God's grace, his unmerited love, affection, and favor over my life frees me from fear. People say to me all the time, Pastor, I'm trying to nail you down. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminianist? 
Do you believe in eternal security? And I get in all these kind of debates all the time. You know, where do you stand on these really important issues? Well, for starters, for most people that don't know Jesus, they don't give a rip. I've never won anybody to Christ asking them if they're Armenian or Calvinist. You know, uh, I have not had any success. And I've never actually had much success shifting somebody from one camp to the other either. Uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, saw my, my efforts uh, fall upon the rocks many, many times before. But people say to me, do you believe in eternal security? And, uh, you know, do I believe in once saved, always saved? Well, here's what I do believe, all right? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I believe that. Does that make me a Calvinist? I don't know. But I believe that. I believe that. Uh, here's another one. I believe that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And though he falls, he'll not be cast down because the Lord upholds him with his mighty hand. I believe that. Does that make me a Calvinist? I don't know. You tell me, but I believe that. I believe that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you couldn't earn your salvation, what makes you think you could perform well enough to keep it? If I'm saved by God's grace, how do I stay saved? Hello, by his grace. You know, and that's true whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist. You only are saved by his grace, right? It's the only way we get to continue to walk this journey out with God is by his grace. Because he pours out his love on us every stinking day. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, the Bible says, he pours it into my lap. Man, can a person backslide? That's the other question I get asked because they really want to nail me down. Am I Armenian or am I Calvinist? So can a person backslide? Well, I just say this to them. Well, perhaps, but it's not as simple as you think. It's just not as simple as you think. God's grace was enough to save you. Do you not think it's enough to keep you as well? The same grace that redeemed you, the same application of Christ's death and resurrection uh, and the sacrifice he made on your life that redeemed you in the first place, do you not think it's enough to keep you? But what if I go out and do this? Or what if I go out and do that? Am I still saved? You know, and I used to run into this all the time with people. And then, uh, I was sitting in a small group years ago, probably, shoot, 20 years ago, 18, 20 years ago. One of my favorite old-timers in the faith, Bruce Switzer, was in our, we were at his house, having a cell group. And we were talking about a story that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the story of the prodigal son, right? Which um, I pointed out to you we needed to rename right? So we're telling that story, and so I'd read the story from Luke 15, and after reading it, then, you know, being a good small group leader, I uh, asked a few questions for the group uh, to think about, and I noted that uh, while the prodigal was still a long distance off, the father ran to him, and the father embraced him, and put his robe on him, and his ring on him, and brought sandals for his feet, and, uh, and I told people, this is always my favorite story, and, and, and it's all about the love of the father, and so then after I shared uh, Bruce said, you know, a very simple question. He just asked one question. He said, I just have one question. I said, okay, what is it? And then he said, at what point in the story did the prodigal son cease to be the father's son? I had never been asked that question before. So, I mean, silence them, just like now. You could, you could hear a pin drop 
in Bruce's house. At what point in the story did the prodigal son cease to be the father's son? And I finally spoke up. Everybody else was a little too shy to. And I just said, never. Bruce said, exactly. Never. Never. The son ran off, spent his money, as his brother accused him anyway, of, on harlots and all kinds of stuff. Right? But he never ceased to be the father's son. Oh, what are you saying, pastor? What are you saying? What are you saying? I'm saying he never ceased to be the father's son. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> God's grace is not just that aspect of his nature which enables backslidden men to repent and once again be able to stand before him as sons or daughters. Grace is that power by which no matter what we do, we never cease to be a son in the first place. Now, I've had people say to me, Pastor, this is just, this message you're preaching, this is cheap grace. This is the kind of stuff that just destroys the gospel. This is the kind of stuff that, you know, gives people license to sin. Blah, 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 blah. And I understand the fear rises up. We, we can't actually teach that kind of a radical love because that's going to just cause people to go out and do all manner of evil things. Well, I don't think so. Um, how many give that kind of love to your children? Right? Do you give that kind of love to your children or is your love conditional? If you clean your room, I'll love you. If you do say that to your kids, please come talk to me afterwards. You have some work to do in your home, okay? Uh, you need some help, right? Uh, you know, if you do this, I'll love you. If you do that, I'll love you. No, we don't treat our children that way. And when our children, when our children do bad things, we don't stop loving them, do we? then why do we approach God with this kind of thinking that if I do something bad, he's going to stop loving me? He's going to disown me. I won't be his son or his daughter anymore. Sheer and utter nonsense. And then people say, but, but, if, but if grace is really like that, then people could go out and sin and God would still take them in. They'd still make it to heaven. Then, 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 then what? What's your point? You see, we have to get it in our head that this is the way God operates. And you say, well, that makes him pretty vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Precisely. If love is not vulnerable, it's not love at all. Are you hearing me this morning? If God's grace is not vulnerable, it's not grace at all. The very nature of God's love is a vulnerability that he, the one who has control over everything in the universe, the minute that he created a creation in his own image with the ability to love or to reject love, as soon as he did that, he not only became the most powerful being in the universe, he also became the most vulnerable. And when you have children, you enter the, the season of the greatest vulnerability you'll ever be in. Because nobody can crush your heart more deeply than those that you love so deeply. But here's the beautiful thing. If you live it out in a healthy way, if you love your kids in a healthy way, this miraculous thing happens. In that environment of love and, 
And that environment of security, they don't grow up to be reprobates. They grow up to be those who replicate that love and live it forward into the world. That the more we love our children unconditionally, the more we empower them to love unconditionally. You might be saying, if we love that way, if we forgive that way, then they're going to just run off and be crazy sinners. No, just the opposite is true. The ones that run off and, and become crazy sinners, in my experience, are the ones who come from religious, vindictive, unhealthy, unwhole homes who uh, treat their children uh, and, and parent their children in ways of dysfunction and not with the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for his church. And you say, well, then, well, then what, about, what about helping them deal with the sin in their life? Guess what? Here's the thing. The more I deeply know that he loves me, the less I want to sin. <laughs> it's a beautiful correlation. The more that I, I, I know that he loves me, the more I want to honor him. It's the same with your own children. The more they know that you love them, the more they want to live lives that, that, that you would be proud of. Are you getting me this morning? All right. Living by grace is difficult when you approach grace from only the second narrative. When you understand, understand that grace is limited to seeing it as a force of God which sent his son to reverse the curse of sin and provide a means of escape from death and damnation, it's difficult to live life as God fully intended you to live. If that's all you see being accomplished on the cross, it's just you no longer having to go to hell when you die. It's hard to get motivated to do much with that. Really, it is. You've got to see it as more than that. You have to see God's redemptive work as something that empowers me to live every day filled with the love of God and sharing with everybody around me. That's what God wants. That's what God wants. Oh, man. I don't have to get people to try and conform to any image of anything that I have in my mind in order for them to be saved. God does the conforming. I do the loving. That's how it works. If someone comes and says, should I stop doing this or stop doing that? Well, then I can give them an answer. But I'm going to love them first. And I'm going to love them after. And I'm going to love them in between. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying? All right. All right, I'm done. Stand with me this morning. John 1.17. For the law... Rules, regulations, religion, the law, and it was a good law. It wasn't a bad law, it was a good law. But the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the law came through Jesus Christ. God never changed the law. It's still wrong to sin. It's still all the same sins that were there in the Bible, they still apply. They're still sins. But the fulfillment of what should be the pay that should, price that should be paid for those sins came in Jesus Christ. And the empowerment, the unmerited favor of God to be able to live free from those sins comes in Jesus Christ. Are right, you hearing me this morning? That's the only way it happens. Praise the Lord. Grace, then truth. Notice it says, it doesn't say truth and grace. It's grace, then truth. When I live in His grace, I can walk at the truth. It doesn't say, if I live the truth, then I can have grace. No, no, no. If I live in his grace, I can walk out the truth. That's how it works. Father, I just thank you so much for your love for us this morning. And I know that as we, this might, for some of us, this might be just stretching us so much. 
to have to think about these things. And Father, sometimes it's hard to think about these things because uh, until we've thought about them, we don't really see how they're implicating them, uh, or the implications, I should say, of them in our everyday life. Until we start thinking deeply, then we go, you know what, yeah, I used to, I used to share the gospel that way. I used to start with trying to help a person understand how big their sin was. I used to start with pointing all that stuff out to them instead of loving them. And then when they start asking me about their sin, I can talk to them about how much God has paid a price for that sin already. And Father, when I can help them navigate those waters and come to grace in Him, and then Father, be able to live this incredible relationship with Jesus all the days of their life. Father, I thank you so much for your love and affection for us. Oh, Jesus, you're so good. And Father, as we, over the next few weeks, we uncover this journey of living by your grace, living by this incredible understanding of your, your uh, creation and your, uh, your sending your son and his death and his resurrection as we come up in Easter this year, Father, I am asking for you to help us be able to live in the joy of that season all year long. And Father, we just thank you today in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Have an amazing day today in the Lord. Praise God. If you would uh, like someone to pray with you, if you'd like some encouragement today, we're here to serve you. Be blessed. We'd love to pray with you and minister to you. Have an amazing day in Him.